Mike, it's so good to have you here because we're going to be talking about declaw and cats. And anyway, I like speaking to you, but you have a lot of experience in this area. And I know that Michigan has been thinking about this as a state ban and, um, you know, it's come up in Maryland and New York. So it seems to be a trend where the laws are becoming more restrictive for declaw. Correct. And uh, I, I like to talk about this topic <clears throat> because, you know, I have been um, practicing since 1980, so for 42 years. And uh, for over half of that time, uh, I declawed cats mm. and it was just accepted as normal. And, and I think for all the reasons that a lot of people think about it, I, and I'm proud to say I have never done an ear crop on a dog. I saw that as a totally unnecessary and barbaric thing to do, from my opinion, despite pressure from uh, employers that said I needed to do it. And I, I just said, no, I'm not going to. And, you know, sometimes, you know, for certain things, you have to have the courage of your conviction. And, but declaw, we have cats that come into the clinic that, you know, uh, claw us. I know my mother, we had a cat that I had adopted and, you know, she used to say things like some days I just want to cut that cat's feet off, um, you know, because it was wrecking our furniture and so forth. And, you know, we, we didn't know or have or understand the tools about how to handle a cat with claws. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what really started to switch me around <clears throat> and there, there were a couple of things. One is I became very involved with pain medication about 20 years ago, pain medicine. And at that point in time, I just started to recognize how many cats were suffering from neuropathic phantom pain post declaw that we just didn't recognize you know, we just thought that maybe it was normal for a cat to stand there uh, looking around, not seeming like it's in pain, but holding up one foot for a couple minutes. And that's not a normal cat posture. And I realized how much damage we were doing. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do declaws. I'm going to do them right. You know, so, you know, we started doing um, nerve blocks, whole foot nerve blocks, uh, we had cats on medication, um, you know, buprenorphine and NSAIDs and so forth for a week out. And we were still seeing some of this. And then as I started to do pain, get pain referrals, a huge percentage of them were owners that were frustrated post declaw. So I, I think message number one is we are hurting these cats much more than we know because people don't report the signs properly or we don't recognize the signs. And, and that's, that's kind of a tragedy. The other thing I think, and, and so eventually this led me to, to, to just quit doing them altogether. In fact, I said to myself, I'm not gonna do it unless someone comes to me and they're immune compromised and this is the only way they can keep their cat. And then a study came out, and I, I, I hate to say this, a study, because it sounds like the big lie when you can't quote it, but I, I, they, it was basically 
um, they were saying that that base, you know, the the risk factor of someone that has full blown AIDS or something like that getting scratched by the cat is almost no different than a, a regular person. And I thought, you know, that's it. And in the two years that I had said I only do immune compromised people, I never had one person ask anyways. So I just quit doing it altogether. I think the second thing is, what was I afraid of? And what was I afraid of about stopping D-Claws? And, and I think it was twofold. One, I don't want to piss off my clients. I didn't want them to say, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere else that will do a D-Claw. And that has happened, but pretty rarely. I mean, we take the time when someone calls up for declaw, we don't say, nope, we don't do them. And then, you know, hang up. <clears throat> we, we take it as an opportunity to educate them and let them know why we, we don't do declaws. We explain the procedure, we explain the complications, and we give them um, the AAFP resources on how to live with a clawed cat. Here was probably my biggest stumbling block, what I was afraid of. Do I want to see 10 cats a day with their claws upset in my exam room and get the hell scratched out of me? <laughs> so, you know, and it's like, well, you know what? I signed up to do this job and I'm a veterinarian. And, you know, that goes with the, the risk of, of treating an animal that there might be an issue. Surprise, surprise, our fractious interactions with cats dropped precipitously with cats with claws. They no longer tried to bite. <laughs> uh, and that was a big issue. They would come in, they'd be fearful, maybe from their previous experience of getting declawed, but, you know, they just, they were much more workable. And I, and this is the honest truth. I cannot think of the last time a cat scratched me. I have cats that have claws, they whap you, but it's their warning, right? And, you know, um, my, my wife said it, you know, it, it, she put it really well. She said, you know what? That is the cat telling you, I got a knife and I'm going to show it to you <laughs> and you need to back off or I'm going to use the knife mm -hmm. um, instead of, I no longer have a knife, so I'm just going to shoot you with my gun, which is their teeth. Okay. And we see that a lot with dogs too. I mean, you know, dogs, they growl. That's like, I got a knife. <laughs> Don't make me use it. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> So we work with cats when they exhibit that behavior to try to, to calm them down, to find out what we need to do. Do we need to reschedule this for a different day with maybe a little gabapentin or trazodone on board or something like that? But generally, it's just a matter of slowing down, leaving the cat alone in the exam room for 10 minutes, alone with the owner, coming back in, the cat's acclimated itself to the surroundings and we work with it. But we have had no scratches and have had, um, I take that back. We had a feral cat in, uh, last week and it did scratch one of my technicians, but this was a totally feral cat that we had to do something to. So, um, that's like the only thing in memory. And, um, we haven't had a cat bite wound in since we have stopped doing e-claws. And we know that cat bites are the number one, 
work, workers comp complaint in veterinary clinics. So mm -hmm. when I ask you what you're afraid of, I, I mean, I would really like to hear from people out there. What are you afraid of? And maybe I've addressed it, but those are my fears, losing clients and, and, you know, dealing with cats with claws. Right. Right. Well, um, you know, one thing they might, that our colleagues, veterinarians might bring up is that there might be an immune compromised person and maybe they're told, you know, for that outdated reason, if you don't get your cat declawed, you can't have them anymore. Or, you know, if you're too high a risk when you bring up the issue about biting, which is more of a risk. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, there's the cultivation of our belief systems from veterinary school and before um, and, and just what's prevailing out there. And then there are facts coming in from various studies that are showing, yeah, that's not necessarily true or that is not true, like that study from British Columbia about um, shelter cats that, uh, that they studied whether there was an increase in uh, cat relinquishment for destructive scratching behavior or a change in overall feline surrender intake and euthanasia or a change in average length of stay in a BC shelter after the provincial legislation banning the elective onychectomy or, or the declaw or what we should say was right. amputation. And, and so, um, yeah, and their findings suggest that the legislation banning declaw, so to speak, does not increase the risk of feline shelter relinquishment for destructive behavior or overall and is unlikely to have a significant effect on shelter euthanasia or length of stay. Um, and, you know, and, and so, and just one by one, these arguments are being countered by more data. Um, I mean, there's, there are still individual situations. So, so yeah, what, what are veterinarians afraid of? Um, and, is it of being fired from their corporate job that's killing them or, you know, or, or non-corporate job, whatever, maybe it's that, but it's like, that could be a great thing that you would look elsewhere. Right. Um, for me, I mean, I have never done a declaw. I, there was one article I downloaded that it was chilling to me. Um, it, it was more in the social um, science realm and it was written by somebody that that had been interviewing people. I forget if she was working in the field as well, maybe as a vet tech, but she talked about this conversation that she had with a vet while he was performing this surgery. And and she just it was all like written out like this, but she she's saying how he said, Yeah, I don't like doing them. And then what this author said was crunch cut. I mean, it's like between right. his statements, there was this crushing tearing of, you know, it, it was just this, this awful thing of interposed, you know, right. tearing apart of flesh and crushing of bone or whatever. And then he'd go, but what are we going to do? Crush, tear, you know, it's just like 10 amputations of, right. uh, interposed between, yeah, I don't really think it's a good thing. You know, just, yeah. oh, that I couldn't even read beyond that. That was so upsetting. And so for me, if you asked me about, I've never done it, but it's like, what do I want to prevent? Is it ever 
carrying that on my heart and, and, and just, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the afterlife, but sometimes what I think about is how we might meet others who we've encountered or injured or whatever. And imagine instead of if there is some kind of afterlife and we do meet others. And what if instead of a cat that was this size, what if something, some way that we were in the spirit world or whatever happens that we were equal size. And it's like somebody said, if somebody said, why did you do that to me? I mean, just, just that accountability on a soul level um, struck me early on, especially when I was in, uh, in uh, college and was doing a little bit of animal research with mice. And it's like, oh my God, I cannot how, what do I do with this? I, I am responsible for this. I am responsible for that electric shock or for, for whatever happened. And it's like, Oh, this, this cannot be. Right. Right. I, I agree. Um, and I understand the whole thing. What if we encountered them? There was an animated show, an adult animated show. And, um, someone taught their dog to talk with this device. And the first thing the dog said was, where are my balls? And, um, (laughs) um, but yeah, you know, it's like, what, what do they really think about us? What, you know, what, what, if they, if they could conceptualize that we did this to them, I, I totally understand, you know, going back to the, the, the thing about the declaw bands and the statistics that are coming out, there's this, uh, they looked at, um, one, two, three, four, five cities that outlawed declaws, Santa Monica, Burbank, Berkeley, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And these are places that had outlawed declaws for 10 years or more. Mm. And they looked at the intake rates of the, the declaws and um, intake rates of people surrendering cats. And that's one of the biggest arguments that you hear from sometimes veterinarians, but also people, I, you know, I would get rid of my cat if it wasn't declawed, but yet, you know, it, it dropped. And I, I don't know how well this shows up, but the, the high is the the hundred percent is the, the intake rate in the previous five years compared to it dropping down. And in some cities, it's like really significant. I mean, we're talking like almost down to half of the it's number. A, uh, and what was, what was, what was coming down the relinquishment the, the, or the, the, the relinquishment of cats. Yeah. Oh. So once they could no longer declaw people kept their cats because there were less destructive other things, mm-hmm. you know, the biting, the um, um, peeing outside the litter box, things along that line, those all decreased. And then people were willing to try to redirect the cat's scratching behavior, but they're not willing to put up with a cat that's peeing on everything they own. Mm. And that increases with, with declaws. Good point. Yeah. I mean, and I also, I have up here uh, from the American Veterinary Medical Association, the welfare implications of declawing of domestic cats from 2019. They did a literature review. They explained what it is, what it actually involves in cutting. And then they, they have reasons for declawing. And then there's a human benefits. And then they have this section on cat benefits might be an alternative to relinquishment, outdoor housing, or euthanasia. But what we're seeing now is data that counter Act, you know, counterweights or contradicts right. that. Um, and so 
Yeah, declawing is also indicated for the benefit of some cats affected by disease conditions such as paronychia or neoplasia of the nail bed. Well, in some of these jurisdictions that were they're outlawing declawing, they're saying except for the health consideration of the cat. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, so I, and I looked, um, I didn't have a chance to, to look at all the studies, but I went down the reference pages and a lot of these references were from like the eighties and there were no, there was no volume of data because probably in the eighties, there wasn't a single place in the United States that had switched from declaw to anti-declaw. So there's no statistics. Yeah. You can't go to a country like, um, you know, I was talking with my friends from Finland just before the, we started this. And, and I, I said, this is what I'm doing. And they all roll their eyes. It's like, it's so freaking barbaric. It's contrary to what we think of the United States. Um, I can't believe it. The only time we could ever declaw a cat here is there would ha- it would have to benefit the cat in some way. There's something wrong with its claw, you know? Um, right. But, and, and, and another thing I, I was teaching at the NABC Institute and it was a long time ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago. And already at that point, there was like, people were saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing declaws. And, and it was a, it was a pain course. And someone came up to me and was like, kind of embarrassedly said, I've, I've, I have to do declaws where I work. It's required. Can you tell me how to do a proper block? And there was a veterinarian from India who was standing there and I was explaining it. And she, um, and she goes, she was just confused. And I, and I said, do you ever do declaws in India? It says, well, sometimes dogs like will get that claw caught and we have to take it off. And I said, no, declaws where you take the claws, surgically remove the claws from cats. I thought I was going to have to catch her. She swooned. <laughs> yeah. She right. didn't even know such a thing exists. And we have this whole egocentric idea of our country being the best in everything. And here's a country that many people in our country would consider, you know, second or third rate, but yet they have the humanity to say, you know, this is just on some level, this is wrong and we are not going to do it. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that the term declaw is misleading to so many people because it's actually the amputation of right. your distal phalanx. And, right. you know, it can have all kinds of problems. And, and in the AVMA article, the, the other complications that we can think of hemorrhage, most commonly reported complication. I mean, I remember in school seeing all these, you know, cats all wrapped up and the blood is coming through because I, because I would not want to be around, you know, I was forced to see the complications in that school, claw regrowth. Um, and they're, and there can also be like bone chips there. So the cat's like they're walking on a pebble in their shoe, but all the time, uh, wound dehiscence paralysis, radial nerve paralysis from improper tourniquet application after surgery, distal limb ischemia. So improper bandage application, serious injury, um, disease, multiple things, increased susceptibility to immune problems and asthma, cystitis, skin disorders, probably from all the stress other reported complications, draining tracts, 
sequestration of the third phalanx. So again, just bone issues, exposure necrosis of the second phalanx. So, so even more and just on and on. I mean, I, I, I was debating whether to mention this, but to me, I don't know. Did you see that movie, The Piano? From no, way long. I, I did not. So for anybody that has, but it, it was this woman and um, she had a bad marriage. I mean, from, from long ago, from centuries ago or whatever. Yeah. And, but she would, she would play the piano and, and she would love that. I'm probably reporting it wrong, but anyway, so, so then she got this piano teacher and they were sort of like falling in love kind of. And then the husband found out and it was the most traumatic thing of to injure her. He, he took her to this block. So everybody close your ears, but you know, this like whoops trunk of a tree that was cut off and he put her finger down and he whacked off the distal aspect of her finger and i mean it was like i thought i was gonna die when i said i can't i can only watch cartoons i can't watch movies that have bad things like that but the piano teacher made her like a little faux um distal phalanx there but every time she played the piano from then on you could hear that clicker as a reminder but it's like that's essentially what's going on with cats you are maybe it's not with an axe or something but it may or may not be done in a very careful fashion. And so, you know, as we were talking about before we started, if a veterinarian says, well, I, if you do it really carefully, um, and then there's the argument, if you do, if you do it on kittens, very young kittens, that, that, that might be acceptable. So what are your thoughts on that? So, yeah, yeah, you know, and so here's the part where I I really try not to get too preachy because, you know, you can't win anyone over with my preaching and telling them they're wrong. Um, but you can explain, I, you know, from my point of view is, and, and so I, I remember I, I did declaws for over half my career and I used to have a lot of these arguments and I used to say, you got to do it when they're young. Cause they, you know, that way their memory of claws is only weeks instead of years. And, um, but it, it still doesn't go forward into allowing them to do normal behaviors, the stretching, the scratching, the, you know, marking that they, they really want to do. Um, and, and, but I think more importantly, the argument I used to tell people when they asked how the procedure was done, I'd say, well, they have this retractable bone that fits underneath the, the second failing. So you're really not shortening their toes any, and, you know, but in the back of my mind, I'm looking at the, the, anatomy book. And even then I knew I was telling a lie because it doesn't a hundred percent retract and there's, there's a use for it. You know, it's there and it's supposed to be there and you're cutting things that shouldn't be there. You know, it's, it's kind of like one of the things I learned when I, I um, got certified in rehabilitation was the, the terrible effect of removing dew claws in young dogs. And I, I, you know, I'm going to say the, the number wrong, but it's something like there's like seven ligaments and tendons that attach the dew claw to the, the rest of the foot and it destabilizes the carpus. And that if you look at every dog that's had dew claw removals as a puppy, when it can't remember, and then you look at that dog when it's six years old, you know, you can, they, they bend their carpus like we do, like this far, instead of having the carpal pad touch the, the antebrachium. And you know, so it, these, these things all do have long-term effects if only we look for them. Right, 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 
Yeah. I, I mean, it makes me think of people that have had plantar fasciitis surgery and cutting into that fascia that you need that stability. Yeah. You need that. You it, It's better to have that stability if you don't have to have that surgery. Um, number one, because it, that is important for the architecture of the foot. And so in the quadruped, you know, they are weight bearing there on the front and that so much of the pain that we attribute or default to plantar fasciitis, if we don't know any better, can come from the calf um, and it can be radiating pain. But um, right, right, exactly. I mean, I had plantar fasciitis surgery. I was talked into it a long time ago, uh, 35 years ago. Now, you know, I have arthritis in that foot. I have the navicular bone is displaced upward. Uh, my toes are contracted. And when I started to have plantar fasciitis a few years later, and it felt really good afterwards, it was like, thank God I got this done. And the, but it was temporary. Two years later, I had it in the other foot and I saw the first one was done by a podiatrist. I saw an orthopedic surgeon two years later, and she says, nobody ever dies with plantar fasciitis. It goes away eventually and just leave it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then get acupuncture for your deep flexors. Right. Um, Right. But yeah. And so, so what do you, so I know that you're um, kind of dealing with this with Michigan right now. So what are the issues that people may not realize, like what's frustrating you with the the, the lack of information or or maybe the vet med association? I know in Colorado, the veterinary medical association banned or didn't was opposed the ban to my understanding. And that's Um, the same in, in Michigan. The bill was actually about to go into committee um, in March of 2020. So, and then it, everything fell apart. So, um, you know, now that COVID is, you know, slowly regressing, um, we, you know, I'm hoping that it can be brought back up again. I'm trying to get one city in particular to enact a citywide band as kind of a shining example for the rest of Michigan. Mm. Um, I'm sure I'll get hate mail, but you're, you're right. It was the, uh, the Michigan Veterinary Medical Association is firmly opposed to a declaw ban. Most of the veterinarians I talk to are opposed to a declaw ban. But when I talk to them, and talk about my experience, at least they're paying me lip service and saying they're changing their mind. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's, I one just, thing to, it's one thing to say, I agree. It's another thing when they put their vote in, you know? <laughs> right. Right. I, I mean, to, if you're losing clients, if that was one thing that they were worried about, then, I mean, it seems like so many practices are so busy right now. Maybe you don't, that's not as much of a consideration. Um, And and I, I don't think I, I don't think I lost more than a handful of clients a year mm -hmm. because we took the time. Yeah. I mean, just to perform a surgery like that, where the fiber of your being is so opposed to it, uh, just the damage that that you come away with the residue, even personally. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you do you get hate mail for the, for your views? No, um, 
people, I think, realize that maybe I'm on the right side of history on this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't want to publicly give hate mail, but I I I wouldn't be surprised if I wouldn't get it from veterinarians if I were to get it, if I were the driving, if I were the known driving force about getting this passed. And their arguments would be like we've discussed, like, oh, well, the cat's going to be euthanized if they can't or blah, blah, blah. It would be all the same arguments. And also in this country, I think we're unique. The the imposition of politicians making decisions for us, you know, this is why, you know, we put, you know, millions of cats and dogs to sleep every year in the humane societies. And, you know, countries like Finland and uh, Nordic and Scandinavian countries put like zero to sleep. Um, Finland doesn't even have a humane society. Norway has one with a capacity of 28 animals. They don't even there. It's against the law to spay and neuter in Norway, unless there's a medical reason, but yet they don't have a population issue. And I, the reason I'm bringing this up, I think this transfers over to the United States about our, our cowboy attitude about, you know, you know, live and die free and don't tell me what I can't do. And I'm going to let my animal breed indiscriminately and, and so on. Unless um, you're a female and you got pregnant through whatever reason, and then you're forced to carry that. Right. right. So it matters right. who, who <laughs> is it that needs to have the right to call the shots on somebody else or their own body. I mean, it's not an even playing field. Right. It is not. It is not. Um, yeah. I, I mean, and, and as you're, you've, you've alluded to before, I mean, whether we're going to cut tails because some, some club said your dog, if it wants to show has to have a tail this size mm-hmm. and not bigger or the, the ears, as we've said, I mean, it's, it's all that, but it is, heartening to see that there's more permission to discuss it so to speak in in our you know to in our profession that that more are speaking out and i remember when one of the the main proponents of um the declaw bands came through our acupuncture course and um, i hadn't even heard about that opposition before and to see how far she has come with her mission and to see other people, other veterinarians speaking out, becoming politically active in their state or their city or whatever. And, and it's just, yeah, it all takes a lot of time and maybe we'll die before we actually see our own results. But I think all the voices that are saying no and giving options and and making this decision for themselves, there, there is definite progress. Right. I have a little, uh, lapel button that I give out to my kitten owners that says my vet loves my cat more than my couch and um people wait (laughs) your vet loves oh yeah my vet loves my cat more than my couch more than the vet loves the couch right so in other words he is not willing to sacrifice the cat's claws just to save your couch right I really love that yeah and yeah Right. Exactly. And, 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 I, and I want people to know this is a personal thing. This is like, this is something I really believe in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it's, I love your cat. I don't give a damn about how much money you pay for your couch. <laughs> right. Right. And I don't give a damn about how much money I pay for them either. It, it's more like, 
if I am to purchase some kind of upholstered piece of furniture, I I plan that that will be because you know I I have more than one cat. Um, I mean that's going to be something that's going to happen. So. Right. Or, you know, maybe if I put little things, you know, if I was determined for them not to do that, then I could take measures. But I'm just like, I love cats. They're part of the family. I love to see them stretch. I love to see them appreciate the furniture, maybe in a different way than I do, but it really doesn't bother me. Right. Um, And we hit, we, so my daughter's cat was decided it was going to use a corner of our furniture as a scratching post. And she went and bought the double-sided sticky tape mm -hmm. and put it on and that was it. It was only that one piece that the cat really wanted to go after, right. you know? So, and, and, and she redirected it to scratching posts and, you know, there's ways. Yeah. You know, curiously, um, for a couple of my most recent adoptions who are siblings and they're 11 months old now, um, they invented the concept of using a foam roller, which I wasn't using as much. I had a bunch of different ones. So I just had it kind of tucked under a little shelf and um, and it was about the same size. Like, I guess it was four feet and I could keep it upright so it could just be living there. And they started scratching that. And it's like, wow, they really love that as a scratching post. And then when they when it's all torn up enough, I'll buy another one. And it's such a magnet for them to scratch. I don't know That's why yeah. it really is. And so I just got three more planning on them you know, going through because they just, it kind of shreds it, but they really enjoy it. So just another use for the foam rollers if you have gotten rid of them, but it has to be nice and big for four feet or whatever, and they can stretch. Right. And that helps right. their back. It, I mean, it just, it's good for them to do that. Right. It really is. Mm -hmm. So where to from here? Just carrying on. Yep. Carrying on, fighting the fight. And, uh, I shouldn't say it's not a fight. I mean, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle and it it's is. an education struggle. It I is. Should. And, and I think the more people that are educated and I think the comment that kind of flew out of my mouth a little bit ago is, is about being on the right side of history mm -hmm. and, you know, do, do, you know, take a stand before it's a law so that you can proudly say, you know what I support, I, I supported a declaw ban before it was, required of me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, that's part of what we're doing today is that, that we're speaking out in, in favor of the bands or, you know, what, whatever. I mean, I, I don't think people should be declawing, at, you know, except yeah, if there was a nail problem. And so, so just voicing our opinion and being part of that, um, just growing call for change. Yeah. You know, and maybe this is a minor reason for it, but, you know, I, I wonder what happens if you move to a foreign country that bans declaws and you try to take a declawed cat in. I don't know if there's any issues with that. Mm. Um, I do know I had a client with a boxer who had a traumatic tail amputation from some door slamming accident and they moved to Germany and they were not allowed to bring their dog in until they provided all the medical records from the emergency room that showed that this was a traumatic amputation. I mean, you can't, you can't even bring an altered dog like that into some countries. So, you know, it's maybe a minor reason to do it, but it could be a reason in the future, you know? 
No, but yeah, I, I mean, I just love that expanded view and, and yeah, the non-America centric um, <laughs> kind of focus. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's um, wonderful. Yeah. Next TPLO. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Terrible TPLO. Anyways. Okay. Well, um, thanks. Do you have, do you have any kind of sources for reading that you've thought about or, um, you know, where you have found kind of strength in this, um, the American Association of Feline Practitioners, um, and and now Fear Free has finally kind of gotten on board. They they verbally have said they didn't think it should be done, but I I think it's now in their charter that you cannot be fear free practice if you do declaws, um, which is good for them. Um, but uh, the American Association of Feline Practitioners has lots of tips for owners. And you don't have to belong to share those pages. Right, right. So I just brought it up. So it, it looks like catvets.com is one of their yes. public facing thing. And they do have their um, statement there because I know they had it like way back. And then I think the most recent one is 2017. Um, and it says they strongly oppose declawing as an elective procedure. It is the obligation of veterinarians to provide cat owners with alternatives to this. If owners are considering declawing, they must be provided with complete education about feline declawing, including the anatomic details of what a declaw entails, i.e. amputation of the third phalanx and the importance of proper pain management. In addition, alternatives to surgery and the risks and benefits of surgery need to be discussed discussed. Um, it is important that owners understand it and that scratching is a normal feline behavior, both inherited and learned. The primary reason for scratching is to maintain the necessary claw motion used in hunting and climbing. In addition, it is done to reestablish claw sharpness via husk or sheath removal and to stretch the body. Finally, it is an important means of visual and olfactory communication. Scratching can be directed to areas that owners consider appropriate and then they, they outline the following steps to prevent destructive scratching and alternatives to declaw. So, so yeah, I mean, more and more organizations are coming around and then that would further bolster the, um, the foundation for those people that are calling upon legislative change um, to show, you know. The, right. And, the, you know, and I guess maybe if, we can't get legislative change. Maybe we could get legislative change to say, if you do declaws, this is what you have to present to the owner, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and because I think a lot of owners, if they just read what you just read, they'd say, uh, maybe not. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and same with TPLO, if they learned all the different complications that can result in the long-term pain, I mean, it really is kind of, there, there are similarities and people don't know um, and then they too could have a lot of regret. Like, how come I did that to my cat? I, I didn't understand it fully. It just seemed like this is what you do, or this is, this is what the vet suggested or, or whatever. So, um, as with so many other things, client education, um, is important as well as veterinary support for, you know, following your heart and doing things that you are ethically sound with. Right. Exactly. We came into this profession to, 
if we, if we wanted to make money, we would have been a, a dentist, right? Uh, we came into this profession to, to, because we love animals first, not to make our fortunes. Right, right, right. And then some leave the profession. So many have left the profession because of various reasons. But I think that, you know, as we see with, with people like, you know, that you and I know well, I mean, people that do medical acupuncture and related techniques and, and how joyful a practice that that can be, you know, and your pain medicine um, clients and patients and everything, that it's a very different environment to practice in because, People are more happy and they're grateful and, and you're doing things that you resonate with. And so, right. um, you know, you don't have to leave the profession to do something else. You just have to decide who you are, what you want to do, what makes you happy, how you can express your love for animals in the best way possible. And so right. there, there is a different path that you can follow. Right. And I wonder if that wouldn't be a, a future topic. We can talk about technicians and nurses and how we are forcing them out of the profession by the way we treat them as veterinarians. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. You no, know, I, I have, um, you know, my technicians stay with me for, you know, six weeks or six years. They don't, there's no in between. They realize right away that they're not going to get away with their old stuff, but they learn that I can love this new stuff. And, you know, I have, two and a half, um, technicians for me. And, um, a lot of veterinarians are like, really, I have like one per vet mm -hmm. and, but, you know, we utilize them and we, so in any ways that might be a future topic. Yeah. So. Oh, definitely. Let's do it. Um, but I'm curious, like what you, when you said it could be six weeks, if they want to stay with the old stuff, is that old stuff, meaning, you know, brudicane, as they say, just right. handling right. animals really not nicely. Okay. Right. Or, or that they, you know, they were looking for a job that they could hide in the back room or they were looking for a job that, you know, I give them purposeful, meaningful work. And some people would rather just drop vaccines and, you know, anesthetize animals or whatever, you know, and not doing anything else. But, you know, we, uh, I, I absolutely depend on my technicians, both from a diagnostic point of view and from, you know, a treatment point of view and so on. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, from the client perspective, since, since I don't treat my own animals and wouldn't want to, but the, the veterinarian that I see, um, I trust her to select even from within the staff, but to only have those technicians or nurses that she would want for her own animals to work with mine. And maybe they're all good in there because because I've not seen a, a not wonderfully supportive technician. But um, when my animal goes in for a dental to, and, and leaves my care, I want everyone that engages with him or her to, to be loving their job and to be taking really good care of my animal because I'm entrusting my animal to them. So um, I want that veterinarian to have the foresight to have people working for them that are going to be, you know, there for the right reasons. Right. Right. And allow them to be there for the right, That's allow right. them to exhibit that natural behavior. That's that right. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. Okay. Well, as always, I love speaking with you and yeah. I look forward to, yeah, our next conversation. And if we've uh, helped just even a couple of veterinarians change their mind, it was very successful. Right. Right. And I think we're both feeling better. We're just being right. here. Right. <laughs>